the thing that DBT does is try to like get to a ground truth that everybody inside of an organization can agree on. And so we can at least have productive disagreement. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Today, I'm talking with Tristan Handy, who is the founder and CEO of DBT Labs. DBT, for those of you who don't know, has gone from an open source project to one of the most critical components of the modern data stack in under four or five years. It's been incredible to watch from the outside, and I was excited to talk to him about it. You're probably our first person that isn't like kind of actively working in the ML field, but data is so critical and tangential that I thought you'd bring a really interesting perspective, and you might need to make it a little more basic you know, for our audience. So I thought I would start out by asking you to describe what DBT is, because in your world, it's a you know really famous, well-known product, but I think for a lot of ML people, they might not even know what it is. Yeah. Um, gosh, I, I sometimes get challenged to answer this question from a, like, like imagine my aunt is, is on the other end of the conversation and then it's like really challenging. I, I know the feeling. I, <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, I do data stuff. Um, the, so if you're in kind of more traditional BI and analytics, uh, your world has changed very significantly over the past 10, 10, 12 years, uh, really driven by the rise of the modern cloud data warehouse. And so now everybody has access to high performance, scalable SQL based compute. Uh, you can just throw data in there and by and large queries are just fast. And there's this whole ecosystem of stuff that has arisen to get data in, to organize the data that's in the warehouse, to report on it, et cetera. And, and we had to kind of, the whole industry had to kind of rebuild all uh, of its tooling around the cloud data warehouse because the way that stuff worked before was all constrained around, you know, speed and, and uh, size of data. And uh, the problem that DBT addresses is that now there's this massive just profusion of different types of data that show up in the warehouse. So you get Fivetran or other products that their whole job is to like, you push a button and now a whole new data source shows up. But it shows up in exactly the format that it lived in, in the source. So you connect Facebook ads and you get 150 tables of, you know, that mapped one-to-one to like a Facebook ads endpoint. And, and so then you as a, a data person, you need to figure out like, what the heck is even in there? How do I organize this in a way that is useful to do some reporting for, for my end uh, data consumers? And that's, so, so DBT brings that, like creates a new workflow around how to do that work. And it's very code first. It, it takes DevOps principles as kind of its, its founding ideas. Um, and it is open source, uh, the, the open core, um, and, uh, you know, first commit happened about six years ago. Over the past six years, there's been a, a pretty large community that's grown up around it. And I guess, what does it actually do to address that that problem? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, how how was this problem solved before? Before you like you couldn't rely on the warehouse to do all this work because the warehouse was was constrained, um, and and so you had these intermediate environments. A lot of times. You, you know, you had commercial products that sprung up to like do traditional like data transformation that happened before you loaded it into the eventual warehouse. So the, the big insight behind DBT was that um, the warehouse now is performant, scalable enough to just do it all itself. And what that means is you, if you want to get access to the uh, compute that lives in the warehouse, you have to, at least traditionally, you had to express your jobs in SQL. And so DBT is a, essentially a, framework for programming in SQL to build building data pipelines in SQL. You write in the SQL that is uh, native to your uh, database, and then it has a Jinja layer, a, a templating layer over top of that SQL that, that allows you to like build, instead of just having this collection of random SQL scripts on your hard drive, you, you have a framework that you can plug into. You have references, so you can build DAGs out of SQL files, very, very like, uh, seamlessly. Uh, you have environment variables, you have, you know, CICD, all of these things that like you would expect from a programming framework. It's funny. I, I feel like from my perspective, running a tech startup where I'm trying to get like official 
records of data on all these like different topics. It seems incredibly obvious to me that something like this is needed. But I wonder if my younger well, self... Well, do, like, do you want to do the big reveal of, of like how you first got exposed to DBT? Oh, should we go down that path? I guess, I guess sure, let's do it. So you were one of the very best um, consultants we've ever hired, and you came in and did our analytics. And it was funny because I actually edited your SQL queries that you wrote quite a bit. And I should say, I learned a lot of SQL from you. Hmm. <laughs> I felt like you were the first time... Working with you is the first time I saw... I mean, I think I kind of learned SQL as like a side thing in school. Yeah. And then I used it a lot, you know, as, as I think when you're CEO, SQL is the language that you end up <laughs> writing the most, you know, stuff yeah. in. And so I think I kind of went down a bad path and SQL kind of lets you, you know, start to write it like you might write, you know, blocks in Excel where you just start like stuffing more and more like chaos into your queries. And, and one thing that's actually notable about working with you is you really like kind of pulled out each piece into its own kind of named section, which I didn't even realize some of those things you could do in SQL. Well, you, well, you, I mean, generally, either you can't at all or SQL doesn't make it easy. Yeah. And, and so th that is, I think you experienced part of the magic that data people experience when they use dbt for the first time. They're like, I've been, for however long I've been using SQL, like it's looked like garbage and you've given me some more structure in the language and I can now engineer it in ways that actually makes sense, which is for many of us, we're, we're used to thinking in, you know, whether it's OO or functional or whatever, like, uh, like programming paradigms. And then SQL becomes very frustrating because you can't actually organize your code in these, sim you know, similar ways. Yeah. I think from my perspective, if I could, you know, write a love letter to DVT <laughs> as someone who doesn't actually use it, but sort of sees the results of it on my organization, I think, you know, you might not realize how much kind of complexity enters your data pre-processing. Like, um, you know, we have a lot of people that come in and use our um, product as students, and there's sort of different ways to get at that. Um, but we often want the students sort of outside our analysis of like leads for sales, you know, from that perspective. And there's a lot of different ways you could kind of cut like who's a, who's a student, but it's really helpful to have one official way <laughs> that's really mm -hmm. good and just kind of nail that down and then let everybody operate off of it. And it feels like one of the big benefits of, of DBT for us at Weights and Biases is that um, we're able to kind of standardize all these like intermediate steps and have like an organized way of, um, yeah, just standardizing on, on these things, which I think has made us operate much better as a company. Am I off on? No, you're totally right. The way that we talk about this is curating knowledge inside of an organization. So it, it used to be that like, we kind of, in our wetware, uh, we, we used English to pass knowledge on to each other. And then, <laughs> right. then somebody would like write a SQL query for themselves based on their kind of imperfect understanding of like who was a student. And now there's a, a way to actually take that knowledge and encode it. And then you can just kind of like forget about it mm -hmm. as an organization until you say like, Hey, how do we do that? And then you just you like look back at the code, and you can even look at the Git blame, and you can say like, well, here's how we arrived there, right? And and if you don't do that, you end up with all these different, like slightly different versions of what's a student, and it doesn't match, and it's totally bug ridden, and and um, and so I don't know. I feel like DBT has made a big difference. Um, so here's the funny thing about that project from my end, from my experience. Uh, I was working with uh, with with you folks, and and you know about machine learning <laughs> and it's so cool and trendy and you can do magic stuff with it. And here I am, I, I'm like, uh, you know, close to the business. I like come at data from a, like, I understand the business. So let me get into the, the like asking questions about it perspective. Um, and to me, what I do feels like not that, Complicated. I mean, at least not that like technically complicated. And so it feels like people who know about something as, you know, this is my internal monologue, that something as complicated as machine learning, how can they not have like this kind of basic stuff figured out? But, but I think that you, it, for, for whatever reason, um, it, it's not a, a thing that ML folks have like 
widely dem- and and I don't I'm I'm curious as to I have my theories on why this might be true, but but um, I'm curious as if you have any thoughts on why that might be true. Well, I think one thing that shouldn't be underestimated is that most people in ML have a lot of academic training. Like mm. just a lot of ML comes from academia. I think more than almost any other field. Like you, you see people, like people kind of knowledge gets passed down in academia quite a bit. It's starting to change, but I think it's still, you know, people are going to original papers and and kind of learning through professors and that. And I, I do think that academia teaches you incredibly bad habits, right? Like I think like everyone mm. kind of coming out of there has to unlearn a lot of things, including myself. Um, because if you think about academia, you're trying to get to an interesting result and then you never have to make iterative progress from there. Whereas interesting. in work, you know, you all you most of what you do is iterate. And so, you know, you really want things to be kind of stable and contained and clear. Whereas in academia, most of what you do gets almost immediately thrown away. So you're sort of like, you know, racing and kind of not care, like, you know, trying to um you write a lot of throwaway code. I think it, like you're, you don't think a lot about structuring your code. And then you especially don't think about um, kind of making your data pipelines um, stable and consistent. Um, because I think Which a lot of ML... Jupyter notebooks end up becoming data pipelines. Exactly, exactly. And and I yeah, I totally understand how it happens. And, and you know, as a... As a CEO of like a growing startup, it, you know, drives me nuts, right? But I, you know, I actually kind of come from that that lineage too. So I think, you know, I've had to unlearn a lot of these these instincts as well. Hmm. And, then, and then I also think it's actually like a real skill that I'm still working on to make good data pipelines for a company. Like every every query is more complicated than than you think it is, you know, at first blush. And um, I think a lot of these choices it's harder to do um, like the, you know, extremely agile iterative development. Like a lot of these choices that you make have long lasting repercussions and need Mm -hmm, to be mm -hmm. um, considered. And it's, it's more important to get it right the first time for, for some of these things. So. um, So we, we started, when I say we, I don't mean the company, but the, the DBT community started using this term analytics engineer for the people that use dbt and or or like do their work in the way that dbt teaches you to do your work um and i think it really gets to this dichotomy where so there are data analysts who use the tools of data analysis to like come to some net new result and in that world it's actually completely fine if your code looks like garbage if you can't you know that it it's just like poke around until you find something interesting and then like wave your hand and be like, hey, does anyone else find this interesting? Right. Um, whereas uh, analytics engineering is this like thoughtful effort to slowly construct reality for mm-hmm. for the business. I, I like my favorite example of this is actually like I was working for a uh, is consulting project. I was working for a full stack grocery delivery company, and uh, I I had to help them calculate the cost of goods sold for like a individual batch of green onions. And it, it turned out to be like an incredibly challenging problem. And, and in many ways, like deeply unsexy, (laughs) but it was, it was like so fun to me to like, now every single time a picker picked a thing of green onions out, we like knew exactly how much cost to allocate to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And I think, um, it's funny how like CFOs kind of come from like a totally different lens from ML where they like really want things to like be precise and accurate and consistent and, and traceable. And um, yeah, I mean, these cost of goods sold calculations are always end up being to, to like get it that, you know, precise, mm-hmm. which I understand why finance, you know, wants that is often in like deep tension um, with the sort of like exploratory data analysis. That's also important. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, I had a question for you that I really wanted to, to ask, which is, um, I think, you know, both of us run companies that are kind of, uh, put this hard, hard to explain, you know, to mm, our, our mm. aunt or uncle. Right. Um, and, and sort of like, you know, kind of behind the scenes and helping a lot of things happen. But I think, you know, one thing that both of us share is we really are passionate about, um, the impact on the world. And we're kind of in this maybe, you know, more for the impact than, than the financial gain. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's my, my sense of you. 
Um, and I'm kind of curious how you how you think about the impact of the the work that you do, how you articulate it to uh, prospective employees or the world. You know, uh, yes, I, I agree with you. And I'm like, okay, let's go there. But it actually, no one asked me this question. Uh, you, you know, like from a commercial perspective, our, our um, mission is to, to help data analysts and uh, help them uh, curate and, and uh, disseminate knowledge inside of organizations. But, but if I like broaden the lens and think, you know, societally um, and, you know, okay, th- there's a lot of uh, tech where we like to talk about making a dent in the universe. And, and so I, I don't, I think that's overplayed. Sometimes I try to be a little more humble than thinking that like we are going to somehow impact the trajectory of the universe. Um, but uh, when I frame it like that to myself, I am deeply concerned with our epistemic reality as a world today. Like we, uh, you know, we, we don't need to go too deeply into politics, but there's been a lot of interesting conversation happening at the national or, or international like this is not just uh, associated with the United States, but uh, th- where people disagree on like basic realities of what is true. And because of that, we actually have a hard time having conversations or having like productive debates. And maybe some of that's in good faith. Maybe some of it's not in good faith, but, but whatever it, the, the thing that DBT does is try to like get to a ground truth that, everybody inside of an organization can agree on. And so we can at least have productive disagreement. And I don't, I don't know that there's some way to like magically organize all structured information in the entire, like, okay, maybe, maybe that's beyond what we will ever get to as a, as a company, but, but it does motivate me to think that the world that we are working on, like figuring out the epistemic reality inside of organizations is like actually a big problem for the entire world right now. Interesting. <laughs> Great answer. Is that, is that what you were expecting? No, not at all. It's a really interesting answer. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just contemplating it. I think it, it's, um, I think it's a great way of looking at, at DBT. I mean, I, I think I, I always don't want to be the caricature of like a startup CEO saying like, we're changing the world with better ML ops, but at the same time, we are changing the world with better MLOps and I, I do feel proud of it my, myself. And so, you know, I don't want to come off like a blowhard, but I also, um, you know, for me, I do feel really proud of the work that we do and think it makes a small dent, you know, small dent in the universe and, and um, you know, don't want to be, you know, falsely humble either when, you know, sure. it feels good to help out, you know, all these customers working on really, really exciting things. But I, I think you have such a specific, interesting um, answer that's such a, a great way of looking at what DBT does. Um, we have, I, you, you talk about the customers building cool stuff. Um, there's, there's this funny conversation, uh, going on inside of our community these days where a lot of, uh, a lot of folks who used to be practitioners have gone over to the founder side. They've, they've gone over to the dark side. And so when it used to be all of these like practitioner to practitioner conversations, now it's a bunch of tool vendors, you know, hyping their own stuff. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm like a little bit jealous of, uh, you know, we, uh, I, I would love to uh, actually go back to the other side of uh, the fence and maybe at some point we'll, we'll get the opportunity to re- rejoin the people who are actually like using the shovels as opposed to making the shovels. I guess... Here's another question that I think about a lot. How do you stay current without working mm. on this stuff? I think, you know, for, for both of us, I imagine it's important to kind of keep doing a little bit of the task. It's very hard for me to learn about m- machine learning in theory without without practicing it. And I, I'm always really trying to carve out time to train new models and try out new um, things that are coming out, but, you know, the urgent needs of running a fast growing company encroach yeah, aggressively yeah. in that time. How do you think about that? Um, I, yes, I, this is something that concerns me a lot. Um, I think that I might be in a slightly easier position than, than you. I think that um, you can summarize a lot of 
uh, the characteristics of our world based on like the evolution of uh, the data platforms that all of this stuff runs on. Like, but that you can summarize that in like uh, price per performance and these kind of characteristics. Like fundamentally, like SQL basically does what it has done for freaking forty years or whatever. Um, and uh, and and then like the tooling on top of it. So you know, there's there's areas in our ecosystem that have a lot of movement. Uh, data observability, data quality, cataloging, these kinds of things are like very fast moving right now. And then maybe there's like another, there's like a next wave of data analysis products that are coming out. So I end up staying on top of stuff by curating a newsletter. Um, I have for six and a half years now uh, published a newsletter called, that now, now is called the Analytics Engineering Roundup and uh, it goes out every week. I write half of the episode or the issues, um, but it is this like really great accountability tool to make sure that like I actually have something new to say every every two weeks um, because otherwise it's it's incredibly easy if no one's I mean like when when fifteen thousand people like are going to read the thing that you just put out there like you feel a lot of pressure to say something correct and novel and interesting um, but otherwise it's very easy to not invest that time. Totally. It's funny. I actually use those external forcing functions too. Huh. They're so they're so effective and I always get really nervous, you know, before, you know, I have to put out something like that. Or I, I sometimes set up talks with topics that I don't, you don't totally, know the answer to yet. Know about yet to yeah. force me to figure it out. Yeah. Sorry for those of you that have watched those talks and thought I didn't look like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> well, sometimes it turns out that they go great, right? And totally. And then every once in a while you're like, oh, that that wasn't perfect. Yeah. Well, do you ever feel, I, I feel like sometimes if I give the same talk too much, I find myself getting bored in the middle yes. of the talk. And then I feel so sorry for the audience because I, I figure if I'm getting bored, the audience must be bored out of their minds. I'm, I have a tremendous amount of respect for professors, for teachers like who like keep the energy level up to delivering the same stuff over and over again. Totally. Okay, well, tell me about tell me about starting DBT. I'm sure everyone asks you that, but it's like such an interesting question. Like I'm, I'm curious, like, what you were thinking when you started it and like, was it just like a rocket ship from the beginning or was there kind of like a moment where something changed and it started to really build traction? So the, the origin story of DBT is that I uh, was burnt out from venture funded startups. I'd worked at three of them. Um, and I think that as a community, Venture-backed startups are getting a little bit better about work-life balance, but inconsistently so. Certain, but but certainly, like back in 2015, that was not the case at all. Like I'd been working for whatever 11, 12 hours a day for like seven years, and so I was like, okay, I'm I'm done with that, uh, and I really want to go back to data. I had started my career in data, and then I'd gone to like different, I whatever, it doesn't matter. But, but I wanted to get back to like actually having a pure data job. And, and so I was like, how do I, how do I do this? And how do I do it from Philadelphia? Because I'm married and my wife has a cool job and she's like, we're not moving. Um, and so I decided to start a one person consulting shop and I was just going to help companies implement what became known as the modern data stack. So a data warehouse, a data ingestion tool, a BI tool, and I was going to help them like do their internal analytics. The thing that was clearly to me missing was data transformation, which was a part of like how this stuff had been done in the past, but like there wasn't a modern data stack solution. And so I uh, got my friend and coworker Drew Bannon to help me build the early versions of, of DBT. We, I don't know. It was like not so many hours that was put into the like initial versions of DBT, um, at its base, like DBT is like not that complicated. So w I started using it on Drew joined and, and we started using it on consulting projects and it was really, um, our consulting clients who got exposure to DBT and they said, Hey, that I, I want to start using that tool. And so they, they would like train their internal people. And then the, the, the big, uh, locus of, uh, where the community came from was, uh, Back in 2016, Casper got turned on to DBT, and they were kind of a big deal in the New York tech scene at the time. And 
they they told all their friends and so Kickstarter and et cetera, like it was a New York tech thing. And um the but but if you look at the graph, we we do like anonymous event tracking inside the open source product. Um if you look at the graph of the number of different organizations using DBT over time, it, that graph has grown at 10% every single month for five and a half years now. And, and so it does feel like, you know, because Can I interject? The, I'm so yeah, jealous. Please. I'm so jealous. That's amazing. <laughs> All right, go on. <laughs> well, the, I mean, at the beginning, we didn't even focus on it because it was not, we didn't have a way to make money off of that. It was right. just like, whatever, that's cool that the community is growing. Um, and then you get to, we got to a point where, uh, we grew from 300 to a thousand companies using it over the course of a year. And that's when the fortune 500 companies started calling us and we're like, Hey, we'd like to buy stuff from you. And we're like, we don't have anything to sell you. Um, and, uh, that, that was when we kind of changed directions and became more of a software company. Um, but there, there was no single point where it all came together. It was just this people underestimate the power of exponentials over long periods of time. Totally. I guess another funny thing about DBT is that it seems so conceptually simple. Hmm. Doesn't it? I mean, it's a funny, um, it's funny. I feel like these are mean questions. I was asking, you know, the the Spark founders, like what makes Spark complicated and what makes any, you know, Ray complicated. I mean, all these things, I guess at their core seem, seem simple, but what, what makes DBT hard to build? Okay. The, the simplicity is, is I, I don't want to take credit for that, uh, but I think that that is like one of our main driving product goals is like also, to be who, simple. Who, who else would take credit for that? Can't you take credit for that? Well, Mitchell Hashimoto should take credit for that because it's a straight up copy of Terraform. Um, so the, or the, the, the user interface paradigm is, is like, so my other co-founder, Connor, um, was an infrastructure engineer at our last company together. And I was telling him about, you know, this need that I had. And he said, have you ever seen Terraform? And this was back in 2016. And so Terraform is still like kind of new and cool. And it's like, let me show you this thing. And, and uh, he showed me the HCL behind it. And then he did a, a TF apply. And I was just like, holy, holy shit, that's really freaking cool. Um, and once you've seen Terraform and you, you've used it, you're just like, well, obviously that's how I'm going to do that moving forwards. And so, so that was, that was the product goal of DBT at the outset. It was Terraform for analytics. Um, and on some level, what DBT does is it takes SQL select statements that are inside of, uh, dot SQL files on your your machine and it wraps them in create view or create table as select statements. And, and so, and, and then it does some like DAG processing with network X and Python. Um, and, uh, so on, on some level like that is actually quite, quite simple. Um, the, the hard parts come in when, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot and and I'm not actually like, I'm not the person who built it. So you're going to hear it passed through like a less technical person's mouth, but, um, Jinja is really meant to be used as a web templating language. And you're meant to, it's, it's meant to kind of process one HTML page at a time, like request a response. Um, and, and in that context, it like, it works quite performantly and all, all as well. Um, in in dbt because all of your pipelines together make a dag what what dbt has to do is it has to read all of them at startup time in order to understand the shape of your entire dag so it can know what work it needs to do and if you have 50 of these that's not a problem but we have users who have thousands of these and it turns out that like uh, it's quite challenging to read thousands of files from disk, uh, operate on them, uh, in, in a way that feels interactive to a user on the command line. Um, so we literally, uh, you know, we have a, I don't know, I think the team last year was like four people. We spent four person years of engineering time last year, almost exclusively on 
performance. Um, so, so th that's, that is an answer. Uh, there, there's like many answers to like, once you go deeper and deeper down this hole, and I'm sure that you've experienced this too. Sometimes the decisions that you make early on in the process of building something you come back to later and you're right. Like, wow, gosh, I didn't realize what a bad idea that was going to be. Um, so yeah, it's a constant totally. iteration cycle. How about, um, documentation and mm. like API names and things like that? Like how, how do you feel about like how well you've done on that? That's always something I reflect on with, with weights and biases. Oh, um, we're, we're not great at that today. Um, our, do, your APIs, are they, your whole product is commercial product, right? You don't have open source surface area. Well, we do actually, we have you do. a client okay. is open source and then, you know, the, the, the APIs are, I mean, anyone can, can call the APIs and pull stuff out, but yeah, the client is okay. open source. It could go anywhere. Yeah. Okay. So we have this funny thing where we have two different types of users, um, or we have, we have users who tend to be less technical. There are people like me who like their primary language is SQL and maybe some scripting and stuff like that. And then we have contributors and that group is like much smaller and they tend to be data engineers and not data analysts. And, um, we have historically, uh, prioritized the needs of users over the needs of contributors. Mm -hmm. Um, and that has meant that we have underinvested, whether it's in the open source, uh, context or in our, in our cloud product, we've historically underinvested in, uh, clean, clean APIs. Um, like the, the open source product really exposes itself as the CLI. And like, if you try to get in there via Python and call stuff directly, you can, but we don't make any guarantees about like the stability of, of those APIs. So we need to, we need to improve there. Um, so the, the, as we mature as a, uh, commercial business, we're increasingly taking the needs of data engineers seriously too, because DBT is increasingly like this mature piece of data infrastructure inside of it's the companies that use it. And so, uh, documentation, API design are like very, very front and center in, in our world today. And are you, is it kind of like a command and control style management to keep the names consistent and things like that? Or like, how do you, um, how do you source like community ideas and yet keep like, you know, predictable names and, and things like that? I don't know that we've dealt with the name thing as much, but, but, uh, I will say that we're not especially good at getting like groundbreaking new contributions from the community. Uh, we have a real like design ethos, like the product is designed in a certain way and it can be challenging for folks who aren't a part of like all of these conversations about this to, to like do big new things. Um, I will say that we have done a better job over time of, carving off spaces of the product that, um, that are much safer to, to get external contribution on. So we, we, we now support, I don't know, a, a dozen or so database adapters. And increasingly it is the vendors for those database adapters that maintain their own adapter. Um, and that's, that's a very well-defined surface area in it. It's anyway. Um, so I don't, I'm, I've never run an Apache project, um, but I have a lot of empathy for uh, for people who are trying to run uh, open source projects without a benevolent dictator for life. Um, it's it's like legitimately very hard to work through these kinds of things purely in like GitHub issues or things like that. Totally, and you wonder if you know, the outcome of sort of that kind of consensus building might not be as good as if, you know, someone is just appointed, like you make the call and, and drive forward. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily better, but it's something that, that we think about it. at. Weights it certainly takes too. more work. Yeah, for sure. 
I want to make sure I ask you about your community because you're so well known um, for the quality of, of your community. Could you kind of talk about, you know, what you do in community building and why they're even, yeah, I feel like a priori you might not even expect there to be such a vibrant community around a tool like DBT. Like, like how did that happen? Um, yeah, I, it, it is, I think it is very interesting. And, and I, I want to have some epistemic humility in terms of like, I, I don't know. I, I don't, uh, I, I have my own guesses as to why this this happened, but community is an emergent phenomenon, and uh, I think you you could ask different people, and different people would have different stories. So here's here's my belief. I um I think that there has been uh, multiple decades of history of data people being undervalued. Uh, the the tools that are built for them underestimate their capabilities, um, and for the first time, um, and and tools that lock them in, uh, like so you're you're less willing to like give back to a, a company that feels like it maybe doesn't have your interest at heart. Um, so so for, for the first time, I think we um, said to data people that. We're, we believe you're very capable and um, we think that there is this new way that you can work um, and here's the little seed of a tool that will help you do that. And I think that people, I, th I think all communities are really communities of identity. Like they, they have to feel like seen and recognized um, and that, that's what creates loyalty. Um, and I think that that's why data people, especially early on, but but still today, um, feel a deep affinity for the DBT community because it's the place that they feel like they're really seen and they're not underestimated. Hmm, interesting, cool. That seems very plausible to me. And and I I don't think like ML engineers are maybe as like historically. Um, you know, disrespected in organizations, maybe they're kind of put on a, a pedestal. Yeah. But I think Weights and Biases was one of the first companies with the point of view of like, hey, we're going to really serve this specific group where I think, you know, most of the earlier hmm. MLOps tools kind of came with a more top-down mindset of like, we're going to sell into CIOs and hmm. sell high in an organization. And, and I think whoever you sell to really ends up controlling your, your product direction is what I've totally, seen. Totally, totally. It, it does not, uh, okay, we, we do top-down sales at this point too, but it will always be like uh, a complement to bottoms-up community-led motion. Um, it, it feels very surprising to me that, and maybe it's just because I don't understand the full uh, ecosystem as well as I'd, I'd like to, but... Um, it feels very surprising to me that n not all companies today in data are started with bottoms up motion. Like it's so much more fun to build a business like this, right? Like I, I don't like, I, I want to build a good product for CIOs. I want, I, you know, I want them to, to value what we do, but, but I want to spend my time talking to like people that do the work. It, it's just like more fun. Man, I feel exactly the same way. That's uh <laughs> Why do you think there's still so many companies that that build tools that like intend to be top down? Well, I think that building a company that sells lower in organization first is a slower road. Yeah. You know, people um have less budget. And so I think in a smaller market where you need to do bigger deals, it might be necessary to sell mm. higher organization. Like my first company, Crowdflower, I think intuitively started off with a bottom-up sale, but towards the end, really ended up serving folks higher mm. in the organization just because I think the ML market at the time was smaller, That's so you couldn't nascent. do it. Yeah. And so, you know, I think me and you are much more, have much more the temperament to sell to people that are actually doing the work um, as I yeah. <laughs> think of it. But maybe yeah. it is a, a market maturity thing. Um, I think that there, that the places in our space that are, I think generally a little bit more tops down are 
things like governance and cataloging and things things that right. like you need a lot of standardization, you know, maybe there's a compliance buyer, things things like that. So Well, do you think of like Databricks and Snowflake as a top down or a bottom up sale? Is it obvious to you what what they are? I mean, I, I sort of feel like people you know, kind of, you can kind of get started off the website, but I, I sort of view them as doing more of a top-down sale from my perspective, but you would know better than me. It's an interesting question. I, so I guess when I think about this, I think about um, when a salesperson engages at a company, do they have to educate that buyer on like what their thing does in the first place? And, um, for Snowflake and Databricks, I think by and large, their their buyers already know who they are. And there's the the job of the salesperson in that context becomes, you know, partnering to make sure that I mean, there's like a million hurdles that will prevent you from effectively using Databricks. I mean, any any data platform. Um, and so so the salesperson almost has to just like project manage their way through that both the like consensus building process and the the like actual implementation process, but. Um, I, I think that sometimes when you go to buy a, a data governance tool, it's like, well, I don't know what, what governance tools exist and well, let's research them and go, you know, anyway, I, I would much rather come in and, you know, the, when, when we talk to data leaders, they're like, yeah, we know DBT. We heard you on the A16Z podcast, you know, whatever they like, uh, and they probably already have some people who have tooled around with it internally. And, and it's, it's such a more fun conversation to have totally totally well i mean it's hard to do that you made a product that many 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 people um use i mean growing 10 percent every month is is put you in a rare category of growth um do you have um thoughts around where the data world is going like what parts of the stack are likely to change in the future gosh that is a that is a very big question. Um, I just spoke to. I think there's there's like. I wrote a I wrote a blog post in 20, the end of twenty twenty about uh, that that made five predictions and by and large I think that those like stand up pretty well. But uh, I think there's a a new set of things that like probably needs to be written. I just talked to a company that um, is building a. Uh, a layer that allows you to turn your data warehouse into a transactional data store. And that is very interesting because if you, if you think about all these SaaS products that have been built over the past, whatever, 15 years or something, um, each of them has their own separate data store. And uh, then you have all this like data engineering to do to like make sure that the right data is in Salesforce and then that the Salesforce data comes back over into Zendesk and it's just like very, it gets a little silly. Um, and you could imagine that like, well, we've centralized all of our organizational data with these data pipelines that were initially built for analytics and the, the data warehouses themselves are primarily built for analytics too. But what if we could have another data store that sat on top of it that had more transactional capabilities and would allow you to have, you know, lots of queries per second and and good really good like insert and update times um not just like that capability but like the idea that the the data warehouse will stop being just for analytical use cases and be for like operational use cases i think is a, a very interesting thread to pull on um i think that yeah, I don't. I have no insider knowledge here whatsoever. But I, my guess is that Snowflake and Databricks would love to invest in technology. To, you know, if if you look kind of from the outside, you know, Snowflake has changed its messaging over the years from being a data warehouse to a, to, I think it was a data platform. Now it's a data cloud, and you you know the 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 game in compute is like you want to handle more and more and more and more workloads. Um, so, and I think there's a lot of reasons that we as data professionals should like that because it means that we wouldn't just be doing things in service of analytics. We could, we could actually like be a part of the product development organization inside of companies too. Wouldn't the latency need to come down to, 
to do that you're talking about being like literally like something that the product actually like queries in in production totally so okay so imagine and i'm not, i'm um i think there's different ways to do this and i've heard different different proposals but but imagine that there's like a caching layer on top of the warehouse and it's using replication to kind of get a very consistent state of the world um maybe there's a small lag between the data warehouse information. And so then you could imagine latency that actually was acceptable for a production application use case. Mm, I see. Interesting. Interesting. There's VCs that are all over the, like Martin Casado was on our board. It's like very bullish on this trend. Tom Tungas was, was writing about this two years ago. And, and I've always wondered, wondered like, okay, but, but the data warehouses don't actually like can't service that type of, query query pattern today but you know maybe if you just kind of like wave a magic wand you're like somebody's going to fix that then then you could see some interesting things happen interesting it's funny i guess one space that i I think is kind of unsexy to vcs but still seems um surprisingly broken to me is is bi tools i mean i guess oh yeah that's part of the stack but it's just funny like I, i think so much money has gone into it Every company uses it. There's like clearly a market there, but you know, I feel like I haven't seen a lot of new things happening, and yet it's still quite a frustrating experience as a, as a CEO. I think that there's a so um, I do some very very small scale angel investing, and that is the area where I'm most interested in um, because I, I agree that many of the you know BI or analytics layer products that most companies use today were uh, started roughly 10 ish years ago, Um, which like in the world that we are operating in is like kind of a long time. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything wrong with them, but like I do want to see new takes arise. Um, And I think that that's starting to happen. Hmm. Um, And I think that sometimes it is because in the same way that like Redshift back kicking off the wave of the cloud data warehouse changed the priors for like, okay, what, what has to be true for me to make an application that looks like this? Uh, DBT changes those priors again. So you can, if you're building a BI tool, you can just kind of assume that somebody's going to have a DBT project. They're, they're, uh, you can actually like plug into the graph mm-hmm. and you can know a bunch of information about somebody's data before they've done literally anything in your product. Interesting. Well, we've talked a lot about data, uh, <laughs> but this is, this is, I mean, ML is so closely related to data, but I'm curious, is ML relevant to your company at all? Like, do, do you have any people working on ML, ML internally? Do you think about ML when you think about what DBT should do? Um, there are things that we care about from an ML perspective that we have not yet gotten to. Um, they are, frequently in the realm of, um, developer experience. Um, we, we have an IDE, a browser-based IDE that we, uh, sell to, to companies. And there's a lot that you can do in that context to, um, you know, reduce the time to, to like get from point A to point B. Um, we have, um, a, like access to a lot of, uh, uh, exhaust that comes out of the millions of dbt jobs that we process and it would be great to use some of that to uh predict good and not good patterns for uh, the way that you've built your dag written your code none of these are things that we've i mean we operate solely in the land today of um like building developer tooling using very traditional approaches but th- this stuff is like we're we're it's like not so far around the corner and i'm excited about it cool one more question before we get to the last two okay do you how do you feel about sql it's it's been such a um i feel like of all the computer languages it's like it's survived the best mm. like it's just you know like i feel like you know everyone knows sql everyone uses sql it's something must be really good about it. I think it's just like, is it, do you think it's just sort of like the, like 
Do you think it's kind of became a standard early and has just sort of stuck around as a standard despite its flaws? Or do you feel like there's like some brilliance in it that that makes it work? And and do you wish that it would be replaced by something more modern? Uh, I think that we standards are really interesting. And I I don't know that there's like a technical answer as to like why TCP IP and HTTP are like the founding protocols of the internet. Like uh, I think that they worked well enough and people consolidated around them and then you have an ecosystem and there's, you know. But you, wait, but you, wait, but languages don't usually work like that, right? Like I feel like the languages that I learned yes, in school, even agreed. now they're not mostly like, you know, I learned Perl. That was the thing to, to use and you don't see that much anymore. Okay, but but so I think, and this is a great point, but I think that what happens with these protocols is uh, TCP, IP, and, and HTTP is that they get baked into products. They get baked into the Apache web server. They get baked into, uh, you know, et, et cetera. Um, and that has network effects because when all the other vendors support this thing, then, well, we got to support it too. And then everybody just kind of agree, okay, basically this is good enough. Um, with, with a language, with, with Python, you run it yourself. You don't need it to be executed anywhere else. Mm. And so every individual engineer or engineering team can kind of choose Python or Go or TypeScript or whatever. And they, they get to make that decision without any network effects being involved at all. But SQL is more like, HTTP than it is like Go, because you, as the person choosing to write it, are not controlling the execution environment. You buy a database, and there's only a certain number of databases, and they have they they all use SQL. And well, okay, maybe not all of them, but uh, by and large, most of them historically. And so, not only are there these like network effects around uh, because the vendors support it, then I have to learn it. But then there's the return network effects where like, well, because everyone knows SQL, I'm also going to build a product built around that. So like Snowflake could have said, Snowflake is a brand new database. In 2012, they could have said like, we're going to invent our own language. But like, that doesn't make any sense because Tableau already works with SQL and everything already works with SQL. But I guess it's funny, like, Java or the JVM has some of that. And then you see mm-hmm. stuff like Scala, you know, getting getting written on top of that or compiling down to that. But yet everything that yes. compiles down to SQL is just enraging. Like I feel like every time I've used like a higher level on top of SQL, like all the different versions, I feel like I've tried them. And something about like, it just like is, active record or an ORM or something. Yeah, like an or like yeah, every yeah. ORM is just like you wanna like at, at first it feels good and then you just like tear out. You your get hair. into the edge cases and it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like why um, hasn't someone built a higher level uh, construct on top of so, it that, that works? So well? I totally agree with that. I think that that is um we didn't talk about this pre-taping, so I'm so excited <laughs> to be talking about this. Um, the that is generally how standards progress. Like there's there's this like base thing, and then people are like, okay, that's good enough for what it does, and then they're like, well, let's build a higher level of abstraction, and we'll solve some of the. This is like, you know, JavaScript and and you know, etc. Um, we talk about this internally as like who's going to build the React for SQL? And I am, I'm very interested in that question. I believe that will happen over the next five years. Hmm. I think that there's too much money floating around and incentive to like want. A, so we, we solved it. The, the way that DBT works, it's, it's very similar to like Ruby on Rails back in the day with like .erb files. There's like templating and, uh, but, but we didn't like build React. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, I think that either we will or somebody will, um, and if somebody builds it and it's not us, then I'm very happy to just like have it be another choice of language that like you can put into your DBT DAGs. Um, I agree. I, I think that we've using templating, we've made a lot of progress in what you can like idiomatically express in SQL, but it's still not as pleasant of an experience as just like writing kind of other languages are you working on this no not not today uh there so the the one person who uh is is working on this in public is um 
Lloyd Tab, the founder of Looker. And um, this has been Lloyd's pa- passion project for for a little while. It's called Malloy. Um, you can you can find it on like their public GitHub. Um, it's it's very interesting. Um, I don't. It's not like exactly how I would build it, but also like I recently got a demo from him, and there's like some real magical capabilities there that I had never even thought to like want out of my you know SQL like language. So I don't know. I I'm I would like this as much as you or anybody else. Very cool. Um, well, we always end with you know two questions, and I want to modify them for you, I guess. And I think you know we usually ask what's an underrated topic in ML. But maybe I'll ask you, what's an underrated topic in data? I mean, we've covered some of them, but what? Uh... Wait, can I can I answer in ML? Oh, sure, please. Okay. okay. Yes, so absolutely. I think that ML has a persona problem, and that there's been some reckoning with this. There's there's some like make ML more accessible tooling. Um, in general, I don't feel like that has been spot on. It's clear that like the tools for the big kids are like really where, where everybody's focused on today. Um, there are some, uh, so there's a company called continual. Uh, there's a couple other, uh, companies in the space of like trying to bring ML to the types of workflows that people in my world use. And I would desperately love that. So like I, uh, I'm very familiar with uh, like what is going on inside of an ML model, but it is also clearly not exposed to me in a way that is like idiomatic for me to participate in this this workflow. So I'm I'm excited about that gap being bridged. Interesting. So like making it simpler to just make an ML model from a set of data. Yeah. The, the, uh, so what what Continual is doing is is they're actually plugging into the metadata inside of DBT, and you can actually. Ex- it's some add some additional metadata properties that that declare certain fields inside of a dbt model as being you know your features and here's your that the uh, the success criteria and and then continual kind of plugs in with its own like auto ml process and, and trains a model and like dumps it back into your data warehouse for you wow and do you actually use that or what what i mean what i i don't they're they're super early um I, I would like to like get my hands on it and use it myself. They they have they have customers though. Cool, awesome, continual. I'll, I'll yeah. check them out. Um, okay, and then the final question is usually what's hard about getting ML working in production, and people usually answer that question. We should actually do do like a, a graph of this, but I think the most common answer is usually the data pipeline feeding into the ML model. So maybe within that, when you see companies trying to set up a working data pipeline. What's the long pull? What's the the place where people usually get stuck? Um, debugging data pipelines is very hard. Um, it's not very hard for people who like live in this world all the time every day, uh, but but it's still effort and time intensive for us. Um, so I think that the whole world of like observability, reliability, all of all of this stuff um, that the uh, the, my answer to, to like ML in production is, is kind of like, I don't totally understand why. So, so, um, DBT runs on Spark, DBT runs on Databricks, uh, you know, the, the, both Spark and Databricks have, uh, have SQL runtimes. And so we can plug directly into them. And yet, uh, that is not where most of our users are today. So, so there's fundamentally not not that much difference between um, doing feature engineering and doing what we would call data transformation. Like you're doing the same damn stuff. Totally. Um, I I think that the answer to like why these two groups of humans do not consolidate or collaborate uh, more effectively is is again the same reason that it goes in reverse. Like most ML people, I think, don't think in SQL, and I'm excited because more and more of these data platforms are exposing Python remotely. So like what DBT does not do any, any local execution at all. And, uh, we, we ship SQL 
to a data warehouse which executes it. And the funny thing is that like that type of interactive uh, work doesn't doesn't exist in the the Python ML ecosystem as much. Mostly, it's like you're on a machine. You're like you're you're running it there. Um, and so Databricks has a notebook API that we can plug into to like actually run Spark PySpark code on. Um, Snowflake has uh, has a new thing called Snowpark where you can like do remote execution of, of Python. Um, so I think that we are going to be working from our end to close this like language gap that exists in practitioners today. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time. This is super fun. And I, I learned a lot. So I have a feeling our audience will also learn a lot. Thanks. Thank it's, you. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> if you're enjoying this interview series, the most helpful thing that you can do for us is leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. And really, we do these shows so that people will watch them. And what I really want is more people to find it. So if you leave us a review, I really appreciate it. 